If you have your Bibles, would you turn them to the Old Testament book of Hosea? Old Testament book of Hosea. There's also sermon notes in your Nova Community Church app or at novachurch.org. We're in a new sermon series, and in, in the sermon series is entitled Voices of Resistance and Hope. And it's a series on a study of a group of books called The Book of the Twelve or The Minor Prophets, and, and it's the last 12 books in the Old Testament. And I promised last week that we're going to do our best in this, in this series to learn some world history, to get into some biblical literacy, and to make it all, we'll try to make it all memorable and fascinating and fun. So today, we're going to start with some history in context and have our director of local missions talk to us about what's going on in the world at the time when the minor prophets were walking the earth. And so, Garrett, why don't you come on up and give us some history and some context. All right, thank you, Dean. So here's the deal. Um, the minor prophets are challenging books to read, yes? I mean, they're filled with weird imagery and metaphors, and they're filled with names of people and places that we just have no clue what's it about. Also, it kind of just seems like it's the same message over and over again. People screwed up, and God is angry. Do we really need 12 books to say this time and time again? It can be very confusing. Now, I personally think that these books can be confusing because we don't know the history or the context of the time of the minor prophets. So Pastor Dean mentioned last week that I think sometimes uh, when we start talking about the prophets, in our minds we picture uh, elderly men with long cloaks and these big staffs, and they were fortune tellers and future tellers, and it's that's really not the case. It's true that some of what some of the, their message, they, they pertain to future events, but the vast majority of what the minor prophets talked about is what was going on right then, right there in their own context. Scholars have determined that a little over 90% of what the minor prophets talked about, it was what was happening at that time and not future events. And therefore, if we understand the history and context of the minor prophets, well, then we're going to understand what they're even talking about that much better. But here lies another complication. The minor prophets were active over a period of 300 to 350 years. To put that in perspective, that's longer than America has been a country. So I'm not going to be able to go over everything, not even close. However, there are some major themes and major things that I think are crucially important to understand if we're going to understand the minor prophets themselves. I have identified four. Like I said, uh, there certainly are more. But these four are going to set a good foundation for us as we move through this sermon series. And as we move through this sermon series, we'll fill out the context even more as we go. Okay. Four things to keep in mind as we read 
the minor prophets. The first is that during this time, Israel was divided into two different nations. You see, right after the time when Solomon was king of Israel, there was a whole lot of turmoil within the monarchy, specifically with Solomon's sons. So much turmoil that they just decided to split Israel into two different nations. There was Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Like, think if... um, if in the American Civil War, if the Confederacy was actually victorious, seceded from the Union and created their own country. It's kind of like that. So there is Israel to the north, Judah to the south, two separate kingdoms, but both were still considered to be God's people. And so the prophets spoke to both of them. So that is our first thing to keep in mind as we read the Minor Prophets, two different kingdoms. Our second thing to keep in mind is we need to understand what exile is and what it pertained to. So throughout the Minor Prophets, they they continually warned Israel and Judah to repent, to turn from their wicked ways or judgment through exile was coming. And what exile was... It was essentially mass deportation. Um, When a big and powerful country would invade a smaller and weaker country and they would conquer them, oftentimes what they would do after they conquered them is they would round up the rich, the powerful, and the armies, and they would deport those people back to the invading country's homeland. The poor and peasants were left behind. And this was a military strategy because as an empire expanded, it became increasingly difficult to maintain control over the different areas that they had just conquered. And so their solution, get rid of the rich, get rid of the powerful, get rid of the armies. And the people that are left over, the poor and the peasants, have no structure, no means to retaliate. And therefore the invading country could rest without the fear of retaliation. But it was not just um, simple deportation. There was a lot more that went on with it. The invading country would also, most of the time, just absolutely destroy the cities they attacked, just burn them down. They would murder and violate countless citizens Those who were deported often lived as second-class citizens and even slaves. And because of the mass uh, destruction, the poor and the peasants that were left behind were forced to scrounge and fight off other invaders just to survive. Exile was horrific. Exile was incredibly destructive. And most of the time, nations that were exiled did not come back. They ceased to be countries. And both Israel and Judah were exiled. Israel by the nation Assyria and Judah by the nation Babylon. Okay, quick recap. First thing to keep in mind, two separate kingdoms. Second thing to keep in mind, we need to understand what exile is and what it pertained to. 
And then the third thing to understand is why. Why, according to Scripture, Israel and Judah were exiled. So in the Old Testament law and covenant, God gave many rules for what his people were supposed to be about. There were many, many rules, but they all ultimately built up to was that Israel was supposed to worship God and follow in his ways alone. And they were supposed to be people marked by caring for the poor, the weak, and the vulnerable. And part of what it meant to follow in God's ways alone uh, was that they were supposed to trust in him for physical protection and not make alliances with other nations. And unfortunately, Israel and Judah stopped doing all of these things. Throughout scripture, we are told that a vast majority of kings in Israel and Judah were bad. They did not follow in God's ways. In fact, we are told that Israel, the northern kingdom, did not have one single good king. They were all bad. They all strayed from God. And what this means is they began to incorporate worship of other gods, different worship practices and societal structures. This includes, but is not limited to, temple prostitution human sacrifice, extreme oppression and violence against the poor. What became baked into the very DNA of Israel and Judah was violence, oppression, and a complete disregard for God. They actively and consistently caused harm to many, many people. In 2 Kings 21, I believe it is, we were even told about a king named Manasseh, Uh, who was a king in Judah, and it says that under his reign, Judah did more evil than the people who occupied the land before them. That would be the Canaanites, and if you know Canaanite history, that is really, really bad. And both kingdoms also made alliances and treaties with other nations instead of trusting in God alone. And this is very, very complicated, and I cannot get into the details of this. I personally find it rather fascinating. And so if you would like to hear more about the completely stupid and foolish alliances that Israel and Judah made and how it led to them being exiled, please, I would be more than happy to talk to you after the service. Why were Israel and Judah exiled? These were not innocent people, not even close. Both countries were actively and consistently harming people often and completely disregarded God. In the process, they decided to make alliances with other countries, alliances that ultimately backfired on them. The judgment of Israel and Judah was ultimately brought on themselves. And now let's think about all this historical context in terms of the prophets, because I think oftentimes when we read the prophets from our modern lens, the prophets seem like pretty harsh guys. 
very vindictive. And the God that we, is portrayed, we think of him as this vindictive God who's just ready to punish those who do not worship him. And that's God, not God's heart at all. God is patient. God pleaded for years and years. Remember that the minor prophets were active for like 300 to 350 years. And he used multiple prophets to do so. 12 different ones. And that's not including Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, or Daniel, by the way. God was patient and willing to forgive if they would simply repent. But Israel and Judah were obstinate in their wickedness for a long, long time. They were hurting people and they needed to be stopped. Okay, so we have explored the two different kingdoms. We have explored exile, what it is, and why Israel and Judah were exiled. And now for our last point, we're just going to take a look at the general uh, time frame of the minor prophets. So in your sermon notes is a very, very helpful uh, chart. It's a timeline of the minor prophets. And a quick tip, because the minor prophets are... um, challenging books to read, I would imagine that the sermon notes are going to be especially important and helpful for this series, so I would encourage you to utilize them. Okay, so if you're looking at the timeline that is in your sermon notes, we obviously have four different lines going. Obviously, the second from the bottom, it's just a general timeline, just dates to kind of help keep us on track. And above that line, you will see a bar of when the minor prophets were active. And above that, the very top line, you will see which empire was ruling and dominant at that time. And then if you'll take a look at that very bottom line, that bottom line is a timeline for Israel. And you can see that in roughly 950 BC, the kingdom splits into Israel and Judah. And then you can see in roughly 723 BC, that's when Israel is exiled. They cease to be a country. And from 587 BC to roughly 527 BC, you'll see that that's when Judah was in exile. But unlike Israel, there's a dotted line after them. And that dotted line signifies the time when Cyrus, he was the king of Persia, allowed uh, the people of Judah to return to their homeland. And so the people of Judah ended up actually being able to come back from exile. Okay, so we have these four major things to keep in mind when uh, reading the minor prophets, two kingdoms, what exile is, and why they were exiled. And now you have this handy little timeline to help you out. I encourage you to reference it. Obviously, there is so much more, but like I said, as this series progresses, we will talk about it more and more. And like Pastor Dean already mentioned, we are going to be introduced to our first prophet, and that is Hosea. And anyways, I am going to turn it over to Pastor Dean now. Okay, so we started Hosea last week, and in this series, like we said last week, we're going to follow what's called the canonical order. That's just a fancy way, not even all that fancy, but it's just another way to say that we're going to follow the order of the books in the Bible. So we're going to start with Hosea. You can mark in your Bible Hosea, and then we're going to just move to the right, and we'll keep going through our series. The Old Testament book of Hosea 
is a story of a broken vow. It's a story of a broken home, a broken heart, and a broken life. Hosea is a young prophet, and and his life and his marriage is a metaphor. It's a word picture for God's relationship with his people. Hosea is told by God to marry a promiscuous woman named Gomer. And Hosea obeys God, marries Gomer, and soon children are born. And the names of the children, get this, it's the names of the children give us insight into the heart of God. And even though Gomer continues to be unfaithful to Hosea and she abandons the kids, he refuses to divorce her. Today, we're going to talk about redeeming love. And redemption can be a theological word. It can be a practical word. It can be a transactional word. Redemption simply means this, recovery by payment. Redemption means recovery by payment. The theological definition of redemption is the restoration of humankind from the bondage of sin so that those in the family of God would be free through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ. Now, there's two storylines that we're going to look at in the book of Hosea today. There's more, but we'll look at two main storylines. And the first redemption story, let me tell you two stories, and the first one is the children of a broken covenant. There's always going to be consequences when a promise or a vow or a covenant is broken. And after the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, uh, Gomer comes the children. In the book of Hosea, the children's names tell us a story of the consequences of a broken covenant. Take a look at Hosea chapter 1. We'll start in verse 3. It says, Hosea married Gomer, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, think and, and kind of picture in your mind the way this is described, and we'll get to it later. Then the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel, and I'll put an end to the kingdom of Israel. So if you're a Bible-reading, note-taking person, take a note, 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, and you'll read the story of Jezreel. It's a bloody, bloody story, so be ready for that. Now, the first son, his name is Jezreel, and that means, the name Jezreel means God scatters. And what God is saying, because he's saying something through these kids, what God is saying through the name of this child is, I'm going to scatter my people as a judgment for their sin. In fact, in Hosea's lifetime, the northern kingdom will be scattered and taken away in exile by Assyria, just like what Garrett said. Second child is a daughter, chapter 1, verse 6. Now get this, how it's described. Gomer conceived again and gave birth. Now notice how that, those words differ from how the first child was born. Gomer conceived again and gave birth, and it's suggesting that perhaps this was not Hosea's child. It gave birth to a daughter. And then the Lord said to Hosea, call her lo Ruhama, which means not loved. So the first child, the son, his name means God scatters, and there's a reason. And this daughter is born, and her name means not loved. This love here is more than affection. This love speaks to the tenderness and compassion for the weak. And a daughter, if you were to name your daughter not loved, 
It would be scandalous. And these were people who experienced the mercy and the love and the kindness of God. But because the covenant was broken, God says, you will no longer be loved. Here's the third child. Verse 8. After she had weaned Lo Ruhamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo Ami, which means not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So Lo Ami means not my people. And when God enters into this covenant with his people, he says, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. But with this child, God is saying something. And he's saying, you are not my people, and I am no longer I am to you. I am is the covenant name that God gave himself in the book of Exodus. Now God says, I am no longer I am to you because of the broken covenant that we have. And because of the spiritual adultery of God's people, the covenant relationship with him has been deeply ruptured and broken. And if we stop the sermon at this point, it would all be bad news. It would just be terrible news. And there is some good news here. Because these are the names of the children. They're in your notes. Jezreel means God scatters. The daughter means not loved. And then the third child, a son, means not my people. But in verse 10 of chapter 1, there is some redemption here. Take a look at this. In verse 10, start with the first word, yet. And I, I love that word because this is a word of hope. After all of this bad news of the description of these kids, in verse 10, it says, yet. The Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. And this is speaking to God's covenant with his people. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called children of the living God. Verse 11, the people of Judah and the people of Israel will come together. They will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. You see, Hosea's story begins with a broken covenant but it moves to judgment because of the consequences of that broken covenant. But it concludes with hope. God says, My people will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. And God is renewing his covenant with his people with the same language of the covenant of Abraham. And then notice how God reverses the children's names of judgment. The first child, his name means God scatters. But in verse 11, we see that it says, my people will come together, not scattered. And then the second child, the daughter, her name is not loved. But in chapter 2, verse 1, we read, my loved one. And then the third, the son, his name means not my people. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says, my people. But, how in the world will God bring redemption? We have a story, a picture of redemption with the children. And the second story tells us, really, the point of the book of Hosea. And the story is of a slave auction. The redemptive love of God is powerfully put on display here in Hosea chapter 3. Let me read to you from verse 1. 
It says, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And then I told her, You are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or to be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way toward you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. In this passage of scripture, we're going to see what redemption really is all about. In the first, we find in verse 1, you see, redemption always knows the cost. In verse 1 in chapter 3, it says, The Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by other men. And she's an adulteress, and love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Now, people ask me, what are the raisin cakes? You know, what, what's the deal with, with those? Because it kind of comes out of nowhere in this passage. Well, these were made, baked, and consumed in idol worship in the ancient Middle East. In other words, these raisin cakes represent the deep, gross immorality of ritual cult worship of idols. In verse 1, in verse one it appears that Gomer has abandoned Hosea and the kids again. We're not sure how many times she's done this, how many times she's come and she's gone. But God says to Hosea, regardless, I want you to go seek her out. I want you to pursue her again, even though she is loved by another lover. And Gomer has apparently been spiraling down the path of sin and unfaithfulness. And we find her here with a man who possesses her like a slave, like a pimp and a prostitute, and he, was, he has used her, and he's done with her, and now he's selling her at a slave auction. You see, redemption knows the cost. The second is redemption pays the price. In verse 2, it says, So Hosea says, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. It's most likely at a public slave auction. And Gomer is being auctioned off as a slave in a public marketplace. Historians tell us that these slave auctions in that day, slaves were, were put on a platform and stripped naked or nearly naked and put on public display because those who were bidding on these slaves needed to know what they were getting. And Gomer's up for sale and the bidding starts. It's not hard to imagine that Gomer probably has her eyes closed and her head down. There's not much she can cover with her shame. It's the only thing that she had left is to not look into the eyes of the ones who were bidding on her life. And she would close her eyes and bow her head in a moment of her greatest degradation. Now imagine with me what it would be like to see Gomer up on the slave auction block 
naked or nearly naked, her eyes closed, and, and men barking out bids for her. I bid five shekels. Another one says, eight, no, ten. And suddenly she realizes. She hears the voice of her husband. And in a moment of clarity, Gomer opens her eyes and looks at the crowd and sees her husband, Hosea. And she thinks, what is he doing? After all that I've done, after all of the lovers that I've been with, after all that I've put him and the kids through, what is he doing here? I bid 10. No, that's 12, 15, 15 in a bushel of barley. And the auctioneer sold. Because that number, that amount of barley, is what typically a slave was bought for. And Hosea would step forward and he would claim his purchase. You could probably imagine him taking his cloak off and covering his wife with that cloak and leading her back home. And Hosea's wife is wondering all along that walk home, why? Why would you bid for me and buy me? I was the one who left you. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed, but the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. You see, redemption knows the cost. And redemption pays the price. And the third part of redemption, it commits to restoration and reconciliation. And here we get a glimpse of Hosea restoring and reconciling his relationship with Gomer. He's bringing her back home. He's removing all of the distractions. Can you imagine... Can you imagine the difficult conversations reestablishing and reconciling not just the marriage, but the mother-child relationship? And Hosea is committing to Gomer and committing to go the distance to full reconciliation and restoration. And he's paying a price. He's already paid a financial price. He's paid an enormous social and cultural price. Can you imagine neighbors as you're walking down the street with your wife covered in your cloak and she, the rumors have already been out in, in, in the rumor of you bought your wife on a slave auction block after all that she's done to you and to the kids and the neighbors looking out the window and seeing this? And most of all, Hosea is paying an emotional price. He's doing the deep emotional work here. Hosea is saying, I've been hurt, and you have left me, and you have left the kids. You have been with others, and I can't pretend that nothing has happened, but I'm going to pay the price. 
so that eventually I will be yours and you will be mine again. And even though we do not know, in the book of Hosea, the details of the end of their story, this great metaphor of God's relationship with Israel, we find that in the latter days, Israel will be reconciled and restored in their relationship with God. You see, redemption knows the cost, redemption pays the price, and redemption commits to restoration and reconciliation. Our small group was having a, a dinner for our last session um, before the summer break. And we were sitting around and one of the guys is a veteran and we were just talking about Navy SEALs of all things. And uh, then we started talking about Army Rangers. And these are the elites of the United States military. It's Independence Day, it's the 4th of July. And so it reminds me of a story told by Tom Allen, who is a retired Army Ranger. And this ar retired Army Ranger, Tom Allen, was watching the movie Saving Private Ryan. If you've never seen that movie, it's probably on this weekend on Independence Day. But the movie is an is, uh, interesting movie because it features Army Rangers. And Tom Allen says how proud he was of watching those Army Rangers storm the beach at Normandy on D-Day. In the movie, these Rangers get orders to go and find and extract Private Ryan, who's played by Matt Damon in the movie. And they go to find him and extract him from the battlefield because Private Ryan had four brothers, and all of them died in the war. And the commanding generals of the army said, we can't have Private Ryan's mom suffer another loss. And so they send these rangers on a special mission to find Private Ryan and to extract him, to bring him back home safely to his mother so she wouldn't have to suffer another loss. Well, the ranger platoon, led by Captain Miller, played by Tom Hanks, uh, went deep into enemy-controlled territory, and they laid down their lives to spare the life of Private Ryan. And they finally find him, but Private Ryan says, I'm not going to go with you right now because my unit is, is preparing for a big fight. And so the Army Rangers say, okay, well, we're going to make a deal then. We'll stay and fight with you, but after this is over, we're bringing you back home. And so Private Ryan says, okay. So this incredible climax of the movie is this big battle scene. And it seems like everyone is killed on both sides, it seems. And in the end, Captain Miller, Tom Hanks, he's wounded and he's dying. And Private Ryan who's not wounded, goes to attend to him. And Captain Miller grabs him and pulls him in close and is barely able to say some words to him with his last breath. And Captain Miller says to Private Ryan, earn this. And Private Ryan's like, what? And he pulls him in close and he says, earn this. It's interesting because 
this retired Army Ranger, Tom Allen, he says, I loved that movie up to this point. But when Captain Miller whispers to Private Ryan, he says, it really made me mad. He says, the reason it really made me mad, because for over 200 years, the motto of Army Rangers was not earn this, it was sua sponte. Sua sponte, which means in Latin, I choose this on my own accord. I chose this. So if Tom Hanks, Tom Allen says, if Tom Hanks were really a ranger, he would have said to him, sua sponte, I choose this of my own accord. This is free. You don't have to pay anything for this. I paid the price. I give up my life for you. This is my motto. This is my job. I do this on my own accord. I chose this. When you think of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, he does not say to us, earn this. Jesus says, I'll pay the price. I chose this. I chose this for you. And for us today, as we ask ourselves, what does what is the message of the book of Hosea? It's for you to re refuse to think of your salvation, your relationship with God, as something you must earn to be good enough for. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it says, God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. It's true. People like you and me, we're enslaved to sin. We're slaves to sin. But Jesus paid the ultimate price, the cost of the sacrifice of his life on the cross to buy you back. For you to put your trust in Jesus, he went to the cross, paid the price, sua sponte, on his own accord. Redemption is that Jesus knew the cost, Jesus paid the price, and he's restoring and reconciling his relationship to us. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand for the benediction today.